Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you praise, honor, and glory tonight uh, for being a God who's called us out of the darkness into your glorious light. And Lord, I uh, thank you that we can gather together to learn more about your word. And tonight, I ask, Lord, that you would help us refute the critics and the skeptics who claim that we do not have access to your word through the prophets and apostles' teaching. And Lord, I ask that you would help um, equip us and equip the saints listening online so that we may go do battle and pillage the God of this age and bring uh, people to saving faith in Christ. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would accomplish that through us tonight. And we ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You remember two weeks ago that I proved the existence of God, or that I guess it was three weeks ago, well, this week we're going to be moving into proving that the God of the Bible is the true God. So we prove that he exists. Now all I have to do is say, well, who is he? And so we're going to be moving into another phase here, and I'm excited to do so. But I'm going to show you tonight that we're actually going to be turning somewhat inward towards the Scriptures. And I want to ask this question, how do we know that the biblical claims are true? And what you're going to see is that we really have four strands of evidence that we can use to prove the biblical claims. Number one We have miracles, we have predictive prophecy, we have the perfection of God's word. In other words, that would be the same theme of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. And all of the things in the scriptures, think about all the different authors and how there's no contradiction. It's really amazing. I think that's a powerful evidence for the truth of the biblical claims. And also, finally, we have historical and archaeological evidence that verifies the biblical claims, okay, which shows, in fact, that the Bible is inerrant. Now, we're going to get into all four of these areas, but before we do that, I think what we have to realize is all of these things are predicated on the reliability of the biblical manuscripts. Right now, friends, we have an unprecedented attack by critical scholars who are saying that our manuscript evidence is not good enough to reach the original Manuscripts, the original manuscripts that were written by the prophets and the apostles. Now, why would it be important that we have good manuscripts to get back to the originals? Well, why would that be? Well, let me show you a statement, actually, from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. This is what we believe as evangelicals, and this is talking about verbal plenary inspiration. In the statement, it says this, We affirm that the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. Notice, friends, that it is the original uh, documents, again, penned by both the prophets and the apostles that we believe are inspired. Okay? So, friends, we don't have any originals left, do we? And if we don't have any originals, we better have good manuscripts to get back to them. Otherwise, we have no way to get into contact with the originals. So, critical scholars like Bart Ehrman, how many have heard of his name? He's written a book called Misquoting Jesus. They are attacking Christianity by telling us we don't have access to the original pen documents by the prophets and apostles. Well, tonight, we're going to shoot back. Okay, We're going to say, no, we actually do have very good manuscripts. And in fact, we have such good manuscripts, we can, in fact, for all intents and purposes, say that we have access to the original uh, scriptures penned by the prophets and apostles. Now, what I'm going to do for a bit, is I'm going to define inspiration. We're going to look inward at the scriptures, and we're going to be looking at what the scriptures themselves say about themselves, the self-testifying of the scriptures. And we're going to look at some inspiration 
uh, some biblical statements about it. And we're going to start in the Old Testament. And here I want you to see David in First Chronicles 20 and 19. He says, all this said David, uh, the Lord, of course, that's Yahweh, made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. So here David, in this context, he is actually uh, developing the plans for the temple. God is giving it to him, and he's going to be conveying that to Solomon. But you see here clearly in the underlying portion that the Lord's hand is upon him. Okay. Now, notice I highlighted in red the details of this pattern. You actually see Moses in Exodus 25:40. He's given the same words. He's given the details of a pattern. And what does he have the pattern for? Well, the tabernacle when he's on Mount Sinai. Well, here David now sees the details of this pattern of, of the temple. Okay? But the big point here is that the Lord's hand is upon him directing it. This is from the Lord. This wasn't something man-made. It was from God. David was inspired by none other than Yahweh. That is his claim here. And we see that claim, obviously, in the Old Testament. Now let's move to the New Testament. Most of you are familiar with this passage, 2 Timothy 3:16 through 17, where Paul writes, he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now I want you to take notice of this term inspired. That comes from the Greek. It's a, actually an adjective, theopanoustos. And it literally means God breathed. Okay? But I want you to think of this God breathing not so much as an inhaling. <laughs> this may be, seem obvious to you, but it's an exhaling. It's God exhaling his divine ordination of the scriptures. He is, in fact, telling the biblical writers what to teach. He is allowing them to use their personalities, but he directly is the one who is breathing out the very word of God. Okay? So, for instance, in Genesis, we see God breathe life into mankind. Jesus breathes on his disciples. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. So, in a sense, all scripture is breathed out by God. It originates from him. Now, think about this, though. Just as Jesus is fully God, fully man, the scriptures are as well. They're written by men. Don't mistake that they have personalities involved. We see different writers write in different means. Peter, his Greek isn't as good as Paul's, okay? But the ultimate author is, in fact, God. It is all Scripture that is God-breathed, all right? And we see the same thing here in Second Peter chapter 1, where the apostle writes, he says, but now this first of all, or know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy has ever made, was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay, so clearly, friends, we're seeing that the internal testimony to the Scriptures themselves are that they're inspired by God. Okay, now, here's the question, which writings were inspired? In other words, is it all autographs, everything, my NAS, is that inspired? Well, actually, what we believe as evangelicals, again, is it's the original autographs. And these are the ones that were actually penned or dictated writings of the original biblical authors. These were the ones that were inspired by God. And the reason why I have dictated on there isn't that God is dictating it, but what I'm saying is that sometimes the biblical authors used secretaries. You'll see Jeremiah used Baruch. We know Paul used Luke at times, and Mark um, was used as well. So these men were under apostolic authority. A Baruch was underneath the authority of a prophet. But nonetheless, they penned the very words of God because either a prophet or an apostle stood behind the teaching. 
Okay, and these were the originals, and these were those which was inspired. Now, do we have any of these? No, we don't. What we have are something called apographs. Here, the um, prefix apo means from. So this is from the originals, and this is all we have, you guys. We have all later copies of the original autographs. That's all we have. So, again, the question is, are they accurate enough to get us in touch with the original inspired writings? Now, I'm going to show you the Old Testament. We're going to look at the New Testament here in a bit. But I want to look again at the testimony within the Old Testament itself and look at the original autographs, what's being testified about the Old Testament. Now, when I'm referring to the Old Testament, I'm talking about Tanakh. Okay, And you can see here, friends, that there are three divisions to the Old Testament scriptures, namely Torah, which is the law, Nevaim, which are the prophets, and Kathavim, which would be the writings. Okay. Now, what I'm going to show you is that the internal testimony within the Old Testament will show that men of God claim to write in all three of these categories. Okay. So let's start in Torah. And here we have Moses. It says in Exodus 24.4, Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. Okay. So here we have testimony that within the Torah, Moses, who writes the Pentateuch, the first five books of Torah, that is inspired by Yahweh. It's, it's his words. That's the internal testimony of the scriptures themselves. Joshua. Joshua, where would he fit in? Well, he'd be in the Nevi'im. Okay? And by the way, this threefold division I'll show you was used by Christ. This is the division of the scriptures as Jesus understood them. Okay? And I'll prove that to you in Luke 24, 44. Now, here I want you to see that Joshua, he is one of the early Nevi'im. He is the former prophets. And he is claiming that he is writing the very words of God. It says Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. Okay? Now let's move forward. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 10:25, it says Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in the book and laid it before the Lord. Okay, again before Yahweh. Now he's still one of the former Nevi'im. All right? Now we're going to move later in the Nevi'im and Jeremiah. And here you're going to see Jeremiah uses a scribe Baruch. It says then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of Yahweh which he had spoken to him. So here he's using an amanuensis, which is a secretary. But even though he uses the secretary, they're still from God. They're still under the authority of the prophet. All right. Now I'm going to give you another one. Now this is an important one in Daniel. Daniel probably wrote this in about 540 B.C. Why is this so significant? Well, let me read it to you and I'll point it out. He says, I, Daniel understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Friends, right here where it says uh, from the scriptures, it comes from a Hebrew phrase, bas parim. And that literally means from the books. So here we have a clear attestation in 540 B.C. that the Jews had a canon. They had a canon of scriptures that they realized were the very writings of God. Okay, these were books, not of men, but of God. And so we know as early as 540 B.C., they already have an established canon. That's why Daniel 9, 2 is so significant. Okay, now we're, of course, Daniel is technically written in the Kethavim. He's written towards the end in the Hebrew order. Um, He would still be in the prophets in the section of our Old Testament. Now, I'm going to show you an interesting passage, actually, from the New Testament, because what I want to establish is that the Kethavim, the writings were actually written by God as well through his prophets. Let me show you a passage. In Acts chapter 2, 
Here we have Peter, he's preaching at Pentecost, and here he is exposing and expounding on Psalm 1610. Do you remember that passage? is about the fact that the Holy One would not see decay, that the Lord would not allow the Holy One to see decay. Well, Peter ends up saying, hey, David's in the ground stinking it up. This must refer to the Messiah. Okay, that's where we are here in that, in that, uh, in that sermon. So Peter writes this. He says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet, and he goes on to say that he spoke looking forward to the Christ, to the Messiah. So here, friends, we have a clear attestation within the scriptures themselves that David was a prophet. Now, why is that significant? Well, again, we have the Psalms would be within the Kathavim, would be in the writings. But yet David is writing this, and he is considered a prophet by the Apostle Peter. So the Torah, this is what I want you to see, the big picture, Torah Navaim, the prophets, and the Kathavim, the writings, they're all written by prophets. Okay? So they're all under the authority of a prophet. And we're going to see the same thing in the New Testament, that all the writings are under apostolic authority. So I want to just show you that because I want you to understand that that is the biblical claim, that the Old Testament is undergirded by the authority of the prophets who spoke the very words of God. Okay? Now, I want to move from the Old Testament into the intertestamental period. Now, this is the 400 years between Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist, which is technically the last of the Old Testament prophets. And I want to look at the apocryphal writings. Now, notice, friends, I have 14 of them listed. There's actually 15 here because the epistle of Jeremiah is connected to Baruch. So there's actually 15. But let me read my slide here. The apocryphal books, there's 15 books written during the intertestamental period, not included in the Old Testament canon, by the Jews, but included in the canon by Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox churches. Now, let me say this. These apocryphal books, we as Protestants reject. But when we're debating with, for instance, Roman Catholics about the apocryphal books, we are, and by the way, apocrypha means hidden, okay? They don't call them apocryphal books. They'll call them deuterocanonical, which means second canon. When we're debating about these books, whether they should be in the scriptures or not, We're only talking about the Old Testament. We have the same New Testament. But what I want you to see here, friends, is that if the Catholics are right that these books should have been included in the Old Testament canon, then Jesus and the Jews were wrong. Because I'm going to show you that they didn't have them in their Old Testament canon. Okay. In fact, you'll see that the Roman Catholic Church put them, in fact, canonized them in 1546, because they needed ammunition to support the doctrine of purgatory, okay? Which contradicts Hebrews 9.27, which says it's appointed once for a man to die. After that comes judgment. Well, they refute that in the first Maccabees book. So they needed these books to hold to their wayward doctrine. But what I want to do is answer the question, should we accept the apocryphal books? And the, the answer to that is no. And let me give you some reasons why. The big reason is that Jesus... And the people of God, the Jews, they knew the extent of their cannon. And by the way, does everybody know what cannon is? We're not talking about artillery, okay? It's not a 105-millimeter howitzer. We just make that clear. A cannon means read or standard. So this is the standard. So if you're talking about a cannon, it is the standard by which you judge all of other things, okay? So when we're talking about the cannon, we're talking about the scriptures. What are the authoritative scriptures from God? And anything outside the cannon is not from God. That's what we mean by it, okay? All right. So they knew the extent of their canon, and it did not include the Apocrypha. Let me show you some clear evidence from the scriptures. First of all, 
in Luke 24, 27, we have Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Remember what the two that were debating and questioning things? And then it says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, here we have a twofold division. Now, I'm going to show you here in a minute that we actually have a threefold division in verse 44. But you can see that to Jesus, the scriptures were known. And to Luke, who wrote this, the scriptures were known. In other words, there was no dispute as to which scriptures. It was Moses and it was the prophets. And there was an established canon. In other words, there was no dispute as to what the scriptures were. Okay? Now, again, remember, in order for the Roman Catholics to be right about the apocryphal books, they have to believe that Jesus and the Jews are wrong. Okay, the burden of proof is on them. All right? Now, when we go to verse 44, we have this commission here where Jesus says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So here we have Torah, we have Nevi'im and Kathavim. We have the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the, so here are clearly, friends, we see in the scriptures this threefold division, the same threefold division that we have in our Bibles today. Now, ours are in different order. The Jews' Bible goes from Genesis to Chronicles. That's their last book. Ours goes from Genesis to Malachi. But it's the same books. Okay, so this demonstrates that clearly to Jesus, his disciples and to Luke, the canon was was correct and they knew it. And therefore, again, the burden of proof is on those who claim that they had it wrong. Let me show you John 10:35. This is important because Jesus here says that the scriptures cannot be broken. That presupposes a set canon. Okay, in verse 34, he quotes from Psalm, I think it's 82, 6. Okay, about you are... They're claiming, hey, how can you claim to be God? And he says, hey, the Lord said that about the judges. You are gods. Okay? And then he he says the scriptures cannot be broken. Well, that only makes sense, friends, in light of a canon that is established, that they all have agreed to. Okay? So, again, that's clear evidence that the Jews had an established canon. Now, this next verse, I think, is devastating. It's one that I I would put in my memory, if I were you, to use with Catholics. It's from Romans 3. 1 through 2, where Paul writes this, he says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay, so here to Paul, they are clearly given the very words of God. And so, again, it is the Catholics, the burden of proof should be on them, because they're the ones who are claiming, no, Jesus and the Jews, they got it wrong. Well, not according to the Apostle Paul. They were given the very words of God. Okay, because remember, the apocryphal books, when we're debating this issue with Catholics, the only thing we're debating is the Old Testament. Okay, and what books should be in there. So clearly, Paul understood that the canon was established. Finally, let me give you a quote here from Josephus. He was a famous, of course, Jewish historian, um, actually commandeered by the Romans. They basically told him, you become a historian for us or we'll kill you. And he uh, became a historian for them. <laughs> I guess no surprise. And this is what he writes. He says, From Artaxerxes to our own time, a complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because, listen to this, of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. He's referring to this 400-year intertestamental period where there were regarded as not being any prophets in Israel. Okay? 
So here Josephus clearly reflects the Jewish understanding that there were no prophets. Therefore, we had no scriptures. In fact, in 1 Maccabees, both chapter 4 and chapter 9, now I don't do a lot of reading in Maccabees, but it actually self-attests within the book itself that there were not prophets to tell the Jews what to do with the altars. Okay, So within the apocryphal books themselves, we have the writers of the apocryphal books saying that there were no prophets in that period. Okay, so friends, with the scriptural evidence, with Josephus and the internal testimony of Maccabees itself, we can clearly see that the apocryphal books were not regarded by the Jews, the people of God, those who you'll see in heaven and by Christ to be inspired in any way. And therefore, they should be rejected as the word of God. They are maybe good history at times, but they are certainly not the word of God and should be utterly rejected. Okay, now let me move on now to the New Testament. Because I want to lay out what the, the Old and the New Testament are claiming for themselves. And what we see in the New Testament is that the New Testament is based on the apostles' authority. Now let's talk about an apostle. That comes from the Greek apostolos. And these are those who are uniquely sent ones who carry the very weight of Jesus whom they represent. So in Jesus' day in New Testament times, you would often have kings. And kings would set out emissaries. And these emissaries, if you use the Greek language, you would call them an apostolos, a sent one. Okay? Now here's the kicker. If you had an apostolos, or if you were one, you bore the very authority of the king himself. So if somebody disagreed with your message or took issue with you, they were taking issue with the king. Okay? That is in the same way that the apostles are bearing that very role. So they're carrying the very weight of Christ's name himself. All right? So what they say has the same authority as what Christ says. They are uniquely sent ones in ways that you and I are not. Okay. Now, by the way, how do we know that they were unique? Well, Jesus says in John 15, 27, that they were those who were with him from the beginning. Okay. We see evidence, for instance, Paul argues that he was one who was untimely born because he saw the resurrection on the road to Damascus. Okay. So, friends, clearly... To be an apostle, you had to be with Christ from the beginning, and you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. Okay, Therefore, you and I are excluded. Uh, guys like, was it Todd Bentley? He's excluded. Okay, He wasn't with Christ from the beginning. But now let me show you some passages in the New Testament. Here we have Jesus in John 14, 26. He says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, friends, this teaching of the Holy Spirit, it extends to us, but it first goes to the apostles, the disciples at the time. And these are the men who end up penning the New Testament. So you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ because we are relying upon the apostolic authority. What was written by those men ends up being our message. And that's how we come to be led by the Holy Spirit. It is through the Word of God. And again, that's why Paul says in Romans 10:17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Why? Because that's what the, his apostles wrote down, because they were with him from the beginning, according to John 15:27. Okay, now, interesting, in Acts chapter 5, remember Ananias and Sapphira, they lie to the apostles. And notice there that lying to the apostles is equal to lying to the Holy Spirit. That is the kind of authority that the apostles have. You lie to them, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. Okay? And again, we don't have that today. We're not uniquely apostles or sent ones. In fact, friends, remember in the book of Acts when even the shadow of Peter would go over 
would cover over those who were sick, lying there on, on pallets, they'd be healed. Do we have that today? I mean, by the hundreds of people being healed? No, we don't have that. Why? Because God was making it a statement that these men were writing the very words of God. It was the way that he established the apostles. Okay, And that's why the book of Acts should be properly understood as it's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Okay, All right. Now, look at what Paul says. He here testifies that he is writing the very words of God. He says in 1 Corinthians 14.37, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. So here, Paul has the self-understanding that he is writing the very words of God. Okay. Now, by the way, the reason I'm showing you all these things is because I want you to see that the internal testimony, both the Old and the New Testament, is that these things are written by God and by men who are writing for God. Now, next week we're going to prove that it is, in fact, God's word. But I want to show you the internal testimony first. Okay. Now, let me show you a passage from 2 Peter 3.2. Peter writes this. He says, You should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So here... Peter is linking the authority of the prophets of the old with the apostles of the new. They are equal. They both write scripture that is from the Lord himself. And finally, 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, you'll see Paul's words are regarded as scripture by Peter. He writes, Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So clearly, again, to Peter, what Paul is writing is on par with the scriptures. Okay? So, friends, again, I want you to see that the New Testament is clearly teaching that these apostles believe that they're writing the very words of God. Okay? All right. Now, the question is, we have the Old Testament prophets saying that they wrote from God. We have the New Testament writers, the apostles, saying they're writing for God. But these are the originals that were written by them. That's what we believe were inspired. Do we have access to them? Are the biblical manuscripts reliable so that we have access to these original writings penned by the biblical authors? And you'll see eventually here that the answer to that is yes. Well, let's start with the Old Testament. I want you to realize at the outset that no original autographs remain, but we have good apographs, remember those are copies, that enable us to determine the original. Okay, so we're going to be looking now at the apographs. What kind of evidence do we have? And I want you to see that I'm breaking this up into primary sources and secondary sources. I want you to think of these are primarily Hebrew manuscripts, and these are primarily from other languages, although there's the Samaritan Pentateuch is in Paleoscript Hebrew. But let me just put them all up here, and we'll talk about a few of them. Um, let me start over here on the left with the Hebrew manuscripts, and we're going to start off with the silver amulet. What is a silver amulet, first of all? Well, this is a piece of malleable silver that was found in a tomb in Jerusalem. And it has an inscription from the high priestly benediction in Numbers chapter 6. And it's actually been dated to 650 B.C. And I'm going to show you in a few slides why this is so important. But that's actually our earliest piece of Hebrew writing that we have as far as manuscript evidence. The next one that you see here listed is called the Nash Papyrus. And this actually contains elements of the Decalogue and also that out of, um, I believe it's Exodus 20. And then it might have some out of the Deuteronomy, but it also has the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. It has the Shema in it as well. Okay, so that would be the Nash Papyrus. Now, before the um, 
before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947, I want you to see these here, the manuscripts that we had uh, from the Masoretic text, by the way, the Masoretic text, let me, let me actually start here at the Masoretic text, because I want to talk about that for a moment. Friends, the Old Testament that we have is called a diplomatic text. Okay. Now, what does a diplomatic text mean? That means we have all of our Bibles, our Old Testaments, are based on one text. Okay, it's called the Codex Leningrad. And it actually, and I'm going to show you where it came from, it actually dates to 1008 A.D. Okay, so that's very late. That's not that long ago. All right? So until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, that's, we, we didn't really know how accurate it was. Okay? But when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's where I want to come up here, the Dead Sea Scrolls were find, found by a Bedouin in 1947. These kids were trying to throw stuff for a goat. It ends up clink. It hits something, and it's in a cave, and lo and behold, there's all these scrolls in this cave at Qumran, okay? Well, when they dig in there, all these scholars find that there are scrolls and manuscripts that date back to 125 B.C., many of them. And so, friends, it shows us that much of the biblical text, especially the Masoretic text, is literally unchanged, and I'm going to talk about that, okay? I'm going to show you a slide on that. But I want you to see that the Dead Sea Scrolls were a tremendous find. But back to the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text, again, is a diplomatic text, okay? That means our Old Testament comes from one source, Codex Leningrad. And in order for us to determine how accurate it is, we look at our text and we compare it to the 3,000 other Masoretic text manuscripts and all of these other sources. Okay? Now, when we get to the New Testament, that's called an eclectic text. Okay? Now, what's the difference? Our New Testament is made up. It has, we have 5,745 manuscripts. So what the scholars will do is they'll sit down and they'll say, what is the best reading out of all the manuscripts for this given verse? Okay, and so out of the 5,745 manuscripts, they come up with the best reading. Okay, do you see the difference? So that's an eclectic text, whereas the diplomatic text follows one source. Okay, now, how good is that one source of the diplomatic text? Well, let me show you. We have, really back to 500 B.C., we have two families of texts that emerge from the Masoretic text. We have one in Babylon, because remember, They come out of Babylonian captivity, 586 B.C. Jerusalem is sacked by the Babylonians. Under Cyrus, they're allowed to go back in 538, okay? So in 538, the the people start going back to Jerusalem, some of them anyway, and we have this Babylonian Masoretic text, but we also have one that remained in Palestine. Now, what I'm going to show you is where our diplomatic text comes from is the Palestinian uh, family, if you will. Now, I'm talking about family in the sense of text, okay, not a physical family. But now I'm going to show you two physical families. Within Palestine, there are actually two families, and all of their kids were involved in keeping scrolls. That was their jobs. They were professional scribes. And in a minute, I'm going to talk a little bit about these scribes. But there were two families that kept these scrolls. There was what's called the Ben Asher family and the Ben Naphtali family. And these people lived up in Tiberias. That is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, up in northern Israel. And what happened is, this is so amazing to me, they each had their own scrolls, their own manuscripts that they kept, right? But what's so interesting is we actually have two different textual traditions between these two families, yet there are only eight small differences within the text. Now that tells us, friends, how accurately these scribes would, would actually copy the Masoretic text. 
And I'm going to talk more about that here in a minute. But that's amazing, right? Well, for whatever reason, the Ben Naphtali text falls out of disfavor. And it's just mainly because Ben Asher, this family, is more popular, apparently. So what happens, friends, is the Ben Asher family is where our Masoretic text that we use today and the Jews use to this day comes from. Okay, so again, Masoretic text means it's... The term Masar means to hand down. So there were these men that were called Masoretes. I'll explain that a little bit later. And they were the ones who handed down this text. But I want you to see here again that the Ben Asher family is where we get our Old Testament. And the manuscript that we follow is called the Coded, uh, the Codex rather Leningradness. Okay, and it's from 1008 AD. Now, that's really, think about it. Moses penned the original Pentateuch in 14, around 1405 B.C., this is really late, isn't it? But what I'm going to show you is that the evidence of the Dead Sea Scrolls sheds light on how accurate the transmission actually was. Let me show you. The Dead Sea Scroll text, 1Q Isaiah, and by the way, let me explain what 1Q. 1 means the cave that it was found in. Q means Qumran, and it's Isaiah. And there should be a subscript A up here, but I couldn't figure out how to put it on my computer, so my bad. But um, anyway, this text here is dated to 125 B.C., all right, now this is significant. This text of Isaiah is 1,100 years earlier than the Masoretic text, yet there is 98% agreement between the two texts. The remaining 2% of deviation is easily explained through spelling errors, scribal omissions, and insertions. So friends, for 1,100 years, for all intents and purposes, the Masoretic text was unchanged. Okay. Now remember, we have critical scholars that are saying our manuscript evidence isn't good enough to get back to the originals. Well, friends, this is tremendous. This is tremendous evidence that for 1,100 years, the text was virtually unchanged. Okay. Now, let me ask you, if it remained unchanged for those 1,100 years, why should we believe any differently for the previous 1,100 years or 1,300 years? You see what I'm saying? So this is tremendous evidence that, in fact, we have really good manuscript evidence. All right, now, let me go to the Murabat manuscripts. And again, in 1951, thank the Lord for these Bedouin, these kids that are out playing and throwing rocks. Because in 1951, Bedouins discovered more manuscripts in caves in the wadi of Murabat. Does everybody know what a wadi is? When the, the rains fall hard upon Jerusalem, there's, it basically all runs off. And the high ground is up by Jerusalem, and it all runs off to the east, and it goes down these mountains towards the Dead Sea, and it forms these chasms, and they call them wadis, okay? And we have caves and so forth in those areas. So this wadi of Murabat is actually located 11 miles south of Qumran, and here's what was found. We had fragments of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Isaiah were found in Cave 2. And these are very exciting in themselves. They're very accurate. But the one that I want to point out here is that the oldest papyrus document ever found in Israel, consisting of 10 of the 12 minor prophets, is actually dated to the 2nd century. This is called Murabat 88. Friends, this is amazing because this text actually dates back to the 2nd century, probably around 180, actually, 180 A.D., now, why is it so important that we have 10 of the 12 minor prophets? Well, look at the manuscript evidence, how good it is. These manuscripts are identical to the Masoretic text, only three deviations in all of the minor prophets, and they confirm that the Masoretic text was stabilized by the second century. So again, this illustrates that for, for 800 years, the Masoretic text in the minor prophets was unchanged. Now, that tells us that the text was stable. 
So these liberal scholars who are saying, well, how can you claim that the Masoretic text, because it's written so late, is getting you towards the originals? Well, we look, hey, for 800 years it was unchanged. Okay, friends, that's tremendous evidence. Now, let me talk about the transmission a little bit, because this is something that's not discussed often. But the transmission of the Masoretic text, as best we can tell, started back about 500 B.C., to 100 A.D., there was a group of men, they were actually scribes, known as the Sapharim. And the Sapharim literally means counters. These men were the first that would actually count the Masoretic text. Okay, So if you had the Old Testament and you were a scribe, you would actually have to count all the consonants in the entire text. And oh, by the way, that is the Hebrew text originally is all consonants. There are no vowels. So who puts in the vowels? The Masoretes do. Because they're concerned after the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, people are losing their ability to speak Hebrew. And so they wanted to make sure people could vocalize the text. So at about 900 A.D., they ended up inserting vowel points. Does that all make sense? So like for me, when I read Hebrew, I have to have vowel markers. I don't know where to insert them. So I have to read the Masoretic text that has vowel markers. Okay, Otherwise, I'm really clueless. Okay, But the Sapharim, these are the first men, the professional scribes, who actually count all of the consonants. So if you're off, you throw your scroll away. That's how accurate these guys are. Okay. Now, we have another group that comes along at 20 A.D. to 200 A.D., and their name is the Tanaim, and it literally means to teach. Now, these scribes start something new as well, and they actually start rules, rules of the scribes that end up being written in the Mishnah. Okay. Now, I'm going to show you these rules in the, in the next um, slide that I have, but these rules dictate how the scribes have to... Uh, copy manuscripts because they, they can't just do it haphazardly. They all have to do it the same way because they are copying the very words of God. They want to be very careful with them. So then from 200 A.D. to 500 A.D., we have another bunch of scribes called the Amorim, literally expositors, and they continue the same work. And finally, we come to the Masoretes in 500 A.D. to 1000 A.D., and again, that's where we get our text, Mazar means to hand down. So they're hander downers. I don't know how else to, to say it, okay? But the Masoretes, again, these men were the ones who put the vowel points in the text. Why did they do that? Because, for instance, when a Hebrew is going to vocalize the text, they must know precisely where to put their cantillation marks, um, how to vocalize the text. So these men wanted to make sure that they could do that, okay? So today's text... When you see it, it has vowel points, you'll see that that was put there by the Masoretes, okay? Now, the Masoretes also put in something that I think is interesting. They put in something called Kathiv Kare. Kathiv is what is written, Kare is what is read. Now, this shows you what they thought about the third commandment. Remember the third commandment that Bob preached on about taking the Lord's name in vain? The Jews believed, friends, that God's name, Yahweh, is so holy you can't mention it. Now, I believe that that's not a violation. If you say Yahweh, that's not a bad thing to say. That's talking about the name of God. But they believed it was actual blasphemy. So, like, for instance, when you're reading the Hebrew text, you will see Yahweh in consonants, but they put vowel points for Adonai. Okay, so you'll be sitting there and you see Yahweh, but it's vowel pointed Adonai. They did that because they had such high regard for the name of God. Okay, that's the kind of men we're dealing with. Okay, and they made sure that they handed down the word of God accurately. Let me show you some of the rules that these men had to abide by. The rules of the scribe, and we find this from the Mishnah. Number one, I'm going to give you seven of them. There actually are more, but this will give you a flavor of what they had to do. First of all, every scroll must contain a certain number of columns equal throughout the entire codex. 
Okay. Secondly, the length of each column must not extend less than 48 or more than 60 lines. The breath must consist of 30 letters. I'm just showing you this because they're very precise and exact. The entire copy must first be lined, and if three words are written without a line, it is worthless, so it would be literally thrown away. Okay. Uh, number four, an authentic copy must be the master copy from which the transcriber ought not to deviate in the least. Why? Because that's the word of God. You don't dare deviate from it. Okay, that's the kind of thought that was in these guys' minds. Uh, number five, no word or letter, not even a yod, that's the smallest Hebrew letter. I'll show you an example of one in a little bit. Uh, must be written from memory without looking at the codex before him. Okay, so they could not just say anything or write anything, rather, from memory. It all had to be looking at the text itself. Six, the space of a hair must exist between consonants. Nine consonants must separate two sections. And then finally, Deuteronomy must terminate exactly with a line. But there are friends, there's other rules too. For instance, even if the king, it says this actually in the Mishnah, if the king himself would ask you and you're a scribe a question and you were in the middle of writing Yahweh's name, you couldn't look at him. You had to finish writing Yahweh's name. You had to wear priestly attire. You had to be ceremonially clean. There was all these other rules. So, friends, these men took writing the word of God seriously. And that's why we see no changes in the text for hundreds and hundreds of years. Okay? So, again, that gives me great confidence that, in fact, these men got it right. Let me show you what a man named E.Y. Kutcher says, talking about the accuracy of the Masoretes. He says, the textual accuracy of the Masoretes as well as of the Qumran scribes, can be seen by a comparison of the Dead Sea Isaiah scroll with the Masoretic text. It shows that the two texts are almost identical. Only three words are spelled differently. Friends, that's amazing. Only three words, separated by 1,100 years, and yet only three spelling errors. That's amazing. Let me show you another one from this R.L. Harris, Can I Trust the Bible or My Bible? is the name of this book. He says, We can now be sure that copyists work with great care and accuracy on the Old Testament. Indeed, it would be rash skepticism that would now deny that we have our Old Testament in a form very close to the, that used by Ezra when he taught the word of the Lord to those who had returned from the Babylonian captivity. Friends, that's exciting to me, to know that really from the time of Ezra onward, we really have the same text. Because friends realized the canon was still somewhat in flux because there were words still written, right? So friends, this is tremendously exciting. And these scholars that are saying this, they're never quoted by men like Bart Ehrman and the other critics. They're never talked about, okay? But friends, that's what these biblical scholars are saying is that for all intents and purposes, we have access to the original words penned by the prophets. But let me fire some shots over the bow, if you will, at our critics I want to take some time and debunk some critics because we're going to use actually the book of Isaiah when we get into apologetics next week where we say that God's word, in fact, has miracles associated with it and predictive prophecy that demonstrates there must be a God who knows the future. So I'm going to defend Isaiah here in a second. But first of all, let me talk about the Pentateuch. Many critical scholars have claimed that the Pentateuch had been written after the post-exilic period. Okay, so you'll find this in a lot of the liberal seminaries, the claim that Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible, but rather it was written after the 586 destruction, 586 B.C. Does everybody know what we mean by exile? That is the Babylonian exile of the Jews. There was two. There was 722 Israel sacked, but that's not really referred to the exile. It's always the Babylonian one. Okay, so in 
The Babylon, they come at Israel in 605. Okay, there's a 605 deportation, 597, and finally in 586, Jerusalem's destroyed. So after 586 is considered post-exilic. So what these scholars are saying is that the Pentateuch was actually written by scribes somewhere probably in the early 500s or maybe even the 480s, 490s, something like that. Okay. Now, what do we have to shoot back with? Well, um, again, praise God for archaeology because he is showing us that, in fact, the more we dig, the more we see the Bible's right. The discovery of a silver amulet, and again, that would be a part of a, a bracelet or some sort of malleable silver that would be used as jewelry. It was found in a tomb in Jerusalem, and it has been dated to 650 B.C. This amulet contains the text of the high priestly benediction in Numbers 624 through 26. Now, why is that significant? Well, because 650 B.C., the last time I checked, is before 586. Okay, So the liberal scholars can't be right that this Pentateuch was written after the exile. Okay, yet how many times do we see any corrections or anybody in the academia world publishing books saying, you know what, we were wrong. And that's one thing that I always I I get a little upset about is it seems to when you're a liberal scholar, never if you hold to these notions that denigrate the Bible and then you're proven wrong, you never write anything to say you're sorry. (laughs) You know, and and it, it quite frankly, it irks me a little bit because they're messing with people's faith and they ought not to do it unless they know for sure. Okay, so again, we have powerful ammunition that, in fact, the Pentateuch was written much, much earlier. All right, now let me um, talk about Isaiah. Many critical scholars have claimed that Isaiah must be written by two or even three different authors. They claim this because Isaiah accurately predicts future events, such as the rise in power of the Medo-Persian king Cyrus. So we see that, for instance, in Isaiah 44:28 and Isaiah 45:2. We'll look at this passage actually next week. Now, remember Cyrus, he comes on the scene at about 538 B.C. Well, uh, the latest that Isaiah, the singular author, would have been writing was 681. So he's writing about the rise of Cyrus who didn't even exist yet. And liberal scholars can't tolerate it because if they accept Isaiah, one author who wrote the book between 720 and 681, then they have to maintain that there's a God in heaven who knows the future. And so because they have a presupposition that supernatural things can't happen, they have to claim that at least two Isaiahs existed. One Isaiah lived after Cyrus, looked back and said, ah, we'll write about Cyrus and we'll call it a prophecy. Do You see, that's what they're doing. So again, the liberal scholars are saying this. They view Isaiah 40 through 66 written somewhere in the 400s B.C. All right. Now, the correct view is I'm going to show you is that Isaiah is written actually between 739 and 681 by Isaiah, the son of Amos. Okay, it's one author. Now, how do I know that? Well, there's three strands of evidence. First of all, I'm going to show you there's a similar vocabulary throughout the first book of Isaiah all the way to 60, book 66, chapter 66. Okay. Now, liberal scholars will try to claim that there's differences in the vocabulary between the difference, uh, you know, from chapters 1 through 39 and then from 40 to 66. But friends, when I write letters, I use different vocabulary determining or depending on what I'm writing. And, and you guys probably do too. But I'm going to show you there's enough similarity that we can for sure recognize that this is Isaiah. Okay? So the evidence is actually on our side, not on theirs. Secondly, Jesus and the New Testament writers affirm one author of Isaiah. Remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he preaches from what? From Isaiah 61. The New Testament writers and Jesus himself regard Isaiah is being written by one author. 
Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Remember, we found this copy uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls dating back to 125 B.C. Friends, it's seamless. There's no indication within the Qumran scroll of Isaiah that there's, uh, there's two authors. Okay, it looks identical to the Masoretic text. So it's seamless. There's no division between chapters 1 through 39 and 40 to 66. But let me show you now. Let's actually get into the text a little bit here. Let me show you some examples. Here we have Isaiah 115 and Isaiah 59.3. And again, this would be in the area where the, the liberal scholars believe that it was written after the exile. But notice how similar the language is. Your hands are full of blood in 115b and in Isaiah 59.3. It says, for your hands are defiled with blood. Okay, very similar language. We also see that in 28.5, it says, the Lord Almighty will be glorious, a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant. And in 62.3, see very similar things. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem. And in uh, 35.6, it says, water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And then in 41.18, uh, Isaiah writes, I will turn the, the desert into the pools of water and the parched ground into spring. So again, very similar uh, ideas and imagery used in both the first and second parts of Isaiah. Now, let me give you the coup de grace. And I actually learned this from my Hebrew pro- professor, Dr. Jason DeRoshi, and I love this. We can actually tell that Isaiah was written by one author because the single authorship can be proven by looking at the spelling of King David's name. Let me show you what I mean. You see, David's name, friends, was written one way before the exile. And then when we get to uh, post-exilic writings, for instance, Zechariah. Look up Zechariah 12.7, and when it talks about the house of David, you'll see it written this way. In Isaiah 55, I think it's 55.3, it's written this way. So throughout the whole book of Isaiah, we see it written this way. Now, what's the difference? Well, again, Hebrew is read from right to left. So we have a consonant. This is a dalif. This is a vav. And this is a dalith. Okay, now these are actually the vowel points. So a dalith without, you see this mark over here? This is called a dagish lene, that little dot. Well, it doesn't have it over here. Okay, so this is a duh, but you would say it without the dot, it's the. So this would be the with, the with. Okay, but, and, and that's the way it's always written in pre-exilic writings. Okay, but when we get to post-exilic writings, again, like Zechariah 12.7, now we have a dagish lene, so you would say da, it becomes a da. And then we have, notice a yod here. Okay, so this yod changes, this, this is a hierarch, and this changes it to an e instead of a i. This is an i here, and it's an e over here. So this we would say dawith, davith. So it's dawith, davith, dawith, davith, okay? So that's the difference. Now what's the, big, what's the point of all this? Well, the point is this. Isaiah spells David's name using the pre-exilic spelling throughout the entire book. Friends, this is devastating because if there was a Deutero-Isaiah or a Trito-Isaiah, somebody who later redacted the book or added to it after the exile, why is it that they're writing David's name the same as the pre-exilic way? That would be a unique fix. It would be a unique catch by someone who was trying to, to, to do it. In other words, this shows us that we have one author all the way through the entire book. Does that make sense? So, friends, clearly the burden of proof is on those who try to claim that Isaiah is written by anything other than the one Isaiah who penned it from 739 B.C. Uh, to 681 and who was the son of Amos. Okay? So, with that, friends, we can determine that Isaiah, in fact, knew things before they happened because he was inspired by 
the living God. Okay, now, when we come back from our uh, break, I'm sorry I'm a little late here, we'll, um, we'll look at the New Testament manuscript evidence.